0: Facebook, you can kind of put your relationship status, and one of the options is complicated. And uh, if I was to do my relationship status with change, uh, it would be complicated. Uh, on the one hand, I'm always looking for things to change, um, things to improve, things to tweak. If you, you know, would talk to me about my yard, I could walk you around to all those spots, that there's like little bare spots or things I want to change. So I'm always trying to like, each year I try to do little things to make our yard a bit better because I see all the things that are wrong with it. And sometimes when I'm pushing Hudson on a swing, I'm just sitting there looking at the weeds. Oh my God. And I like kind of get distracted and start, and he's like, Daddy, push me Oh, And then you know, I start picking weeds out of it. And you know, for the past six years of this church, I've never stopped um, trying to make things better, trying to help us to do, accomplish our mission the best way possible, surrendering all of life to Jesus, inviting others to do the same. So I'm always, on the one hand, always looking for change. I'm all about it. But on the other hand, uh, I don't really like change. Um, since we moved into our house, we've painted, put new paint on on almost every wall. Um, and it was much dif- more difficult to pick up the paint colors in the beginning than it is now because I remember the first room we painted was our living room, which is like a light blue. And I remember I was kind of like, oh, I don't know. Katie picked the color, and I was like, I don't know if this is going to be good or not. And when it got put up, I was like, oh, I don't know if this, I like this color. But then over time, it was just like, oh yeah I like this and so we've just discovered I don't really like change and so when she's like here's the color that I want to paint this wall we've gotten better like me just kind of saying well holly have been good and so I know I'll just get used to it and I just don't want it to be changed and even our kitchen some of you well there, I guess you were in our kitchen when it was you remember what color it was? no uh, I guess not it was like it has two different colors two of the walls had like this dark burnt orange color and then the other two walls had like this kind of deep red color, it was just like very bright. And I remember Katie's like, I just hate this color. And eventually I was like, I don't know, I kind of like it, it's not too bad. And she's like, no, we're gonna paint it, so we painted it, and it's a much better color now. Um, So uh, I resist, even though I like change, in some areas I resist it, in other areas. And I have a couple reasons why I resist change. I think, uh, often think what we have is working fine. You know, what's wrong with the current paint color? Like, why would we change it, it's working. And it's not that bad. Sometimes I just don't want to put the work in to make the change, and so it's like, well, the current paint color is working, and so why would we put the work in to, to change it? Like, like, let's just not do that work. And another reason I resist change is sometimes I'm scared that the change will make things worse. You know, what if we don't pick the right color and then we put in all this work, and now it's you know not it's not good anyway. It's worse. And for these reasons, it can seem easier and safer. Um, to stay how I am, to keep things how they are, than to, to, to change. And uh, the, you know the thing is working now, so let's save the time and energy. Let's not risk it not working because we made this change. And so for yourself, what what is your relationship with change? Do you, you kind of like uh, agree with those reasons for yourself? Like yeah, I kind of do that. I don't want to risk not liking it, or I don't want to put the work in, or eh, it's just fine working how it is. And oftentimes, many times, we're not actually afraid of. The change itself, but of what losses come with the change or perceived losses. If we change this, then I'm going to lose X, Y, and Z. um, In our head, we we will kind of do this calculation: What would I gain from this change? This change, and is what I gain worth more to me than what I lose in making this change? And do the gains outweigh the losses? Is this change worth it? When we started this series, we those were similar questions that we reflected on in the first four verses of the Gospel according to Luke. We looked at those verses, and Luke tells us why he's writing. He says that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. So we may ask, well, why would the believers in Luke's day need certainty about what they've been taught about Jesus? And why would we need certainty today? And the simple answer is that it wasn't easy being a follower of Jesus in the first century. And it isn't easy being a follower of Jesus today. There's different conditions, but it's still not easy um, to be a follower of Jesus, you have to swim against the current, if you want to think of it like that, or you're swimming upstream against the, the culture's current, um, the society's current, um, and uh, could be other religions too. I mean, Luke's day was Judaism and paganism, and today we have other you know, religious influence. You have to swim against the, the current of those things. And following Jesus goes against the grain, which means you're going to experience uh, friction and resistance. And Jesus says, there's a cost to following him. He says, count the cost. And so we need to ask, is it worth it? Is following Jesus worth the cost? And there's going to be resistance, challenges, hostility, rejection, and persecution. We have to ask, is it worth it? When we have to give up stuff to follow Jesus, is that worth it? When we have to give up people liking us or respecting us or thinking certain things about us, is it worth it? And what would make it worth it? And... If we go back to those calculations, they would be worth it if the benefit outweighs the cost of doing it. And our passage today answers two questions. First, who is Jesus? And second, what is required to follow him? Who is Jesus? And what is required to follow him? And the most important question in all of life for us to answer is, who is Jesus? Who do we say that he is? Who do you say that he is? Who, when you name, this is who Jesus is, what do you say and the most important decision in all of life for us to make is Will I follow Jesus? This is who He is. Will I follow Him? This decision has eternal consequences that we and others will live with forever. It affects both this life and it affects our afterlife. And so the first question is raised in verses 18 through 20. Jesus asks His disciples, Who do the crowds say that I am? In other words, you know, what's their take on me? What's their perspective on me? Who do they think I am? The disciples report John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has arisen. These are the same options that uh, Herod was hearing back when Bob preached last week, early in chapter 9. People have landed basically on Jesus being some sort of prophet. You know, John the Baptist, one of the prophets of old, or Elijah, those are all prophets. And if Jesus were a prophet, that would be exciting enough. It has been 500 years since there had been a prophet uh in, like in the Old Testament days So 500 years And you know, that's older than our country you know, That's older than the United States of America So they hadn't had somebody for 500 years Who was a prophet until John the Baptist And Jesus, so that would be exciting And Jesus himself has shown, him, he's shown himself To be a, a, a great prophet Performing miracles like the ancient prophets Elijah and Elisha And Jesus isn't asking this question Because he's feeling insecure Like hey guys, you know what do people think of me? Do they like me? Like, how is this going? He's not in, you know, insecure trying to figure it out. But, and, but everyone has been asking this question. We've seen it asked several times. Who is this? Who then is this? They see him do something and say, Who is this guy that he can do these things that we're seeing him do? And Jesus has been letting people just ask the question. He's been letting his disciples ask the question. Who is this? And he hasn't pushed for an answer. But now he wants an answer to, to it. He brings them to a point of decision. He listens to their report. What other people are saying? And he asks, "Who? But who do you say that I am?" And that's the question for each of us. You know, when we go about our lives, when we probably have, you know, our Sunday school answer, or you could read it off our statement of faith, like, "Oh, this is who Jesus is. Um, this is who um, my church says he is, or my pastor says he is, or who I've been taught that he is." And we have to answer that question, um, but that doesn't help us to say my pastor says this, or my church says this, or these people think that, second-hand knowledge of Jesus doesn't help us. It doesn't help us to say, well, my church says he is blank. Each of us has to answer it for ourselves. Who is Jesus? And to me, not just, oh, I make him into who I want him to be, but who do I actually live like he is? Because it goes even deeper. It's easy to have the right answers, but not do anything with them. Jesus asked in his sermon, chapter 6, why do you call me Lord, Lord, And not do what I tell you. People were calling him the right name. Lord, Lord. But they weren't doing what he told them. And the demons know who Jesus is. But they don't change how they're living, how they're acting, how they're treating people. And so ask yourself these two questions. First, who do I say that Jesus is? Who do I say that Jesus is? Second, do I live like I actually believe that? I live like I actually believe that who do I say Jesus is and do I live like I actually believe that and if not ask what does how I live say about what I who I believe Jesus is what does how I live say about who I believe Jesus is so you're the way you're living is telling you something about who you think Jesus is It's like oh you know he was a good teacher with good advice or this and that and um, all of us in this room Um, our believers, uh, but we can get out of alignment in some areas of our life. Like, yeah, I'm saying he's Lord, but then I have this compartment of my life where I'm not living like he's Lord. I have this other way that um, I'm not living like he's Lord. Or I say he's my Savior, he saves me, but I have this area of my life that I'm trusting in that to make me right with God. Peter speaks up for all of them with the answer, uh, who is he? The Christ of God. And Peter and the other disciples are finally seeing Jesus isn't just a Prophet. He's not just a great teacher, or a healer, or a miracle worker. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the one for whom their nation has been waiting and praying for centuries. But we you know we sometimes can just take that word for granted. Jesus Christ it also comes as last name, but it's a it's a title, it's a role. What does that mean that, that he's the Christ of God? And the fact that he's the Christ of God tells us, well, he belongs to God. He's been chosen by God, he's been appointed by God, he is God's Christ. And for Peter, the other disciples, and most, if not every Jew at the time, what that would mean to them for Jesus to be the Christ would mean he is going to be the king from the line of David, from the family of David, who's going to lead Israel in a military victory over their enemies. He's going to deliver them from the pagan nations and restore Israel as an independent country, free of outside control and oppression. That's what they would hear. You said Jesus is the Christ, that's what they are thinking. Their hope was in a king who would defeat their enemies like David did. A prophet like Moses who would lead them in a new exodus out of the nations that are oppressing them and holding them down, allowing them to worship freely. And then the Christ would reign as king. The Messiah would change everything. So this is what they're hearing. They're hearing Peter and the disciples saying he's God's Christ. He is God's chosen king to rule over his people and deliver them. But the question is, how will this actually look? And Jesus tells his disciples the path he's going to walk in verses 21 and 22. So you have who Jesus is, now you have the path that he's going to walk. Verses 21 and 22 they say this. He strictly charged and commanded them to tell us no one, saying the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. We are so used to talking about Jesus' death that it's hard for us to understand what a shock these words would be to these disciples. And it would make no sense to them at all because they don't have a category for a suffering Messiah, a suffering Christ, a dying Christ. Those two things do not go together. Suffering in the Messiah or dying in the Messiah, those don't go together. How can Jesus be the Christ of God if he's going to suffer, be rejected, and die? How is he supposed to lead them in a triumphant victory if he's dead? Like This doesn't make sense. This is why Jesus strictly charges and commands them, don't tell anyone that I'm the Messiah. Because when people hear those words, Messiah, they think, oh, uh, a military leader who's going to lead us, um, a king who's going to lead us like David did. He booted out the Philistines and the other people that were in the land of Israel. He was going to be like Moses, lead us out of uh, slavery um, and oppression. But the disciples need the mission of the Messiah redefined before they can start telling people. And, and Jesus says, the Son of Man must Suffer many things and be rejected by the elder and chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day be raised. Must. This is a necessary part of God's divine plan and purpose. There's first death, then resurrection. First suffering and then glory. This is the path of the Messiah. Glory doesn't come without suffering and resurrection doesn't come without death. In verses 23-27, through Jesus makes clear what it means to follow him as the Messiah. If anyone wants to call him king, this is also the path they must follow. He says in verse 23, And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross daily, and follow me. Jesus says, "If If anyone would come after me, in other words, if anyone wants to be my disciple, if anyone wants to be my follower, And then he lists out what's required for someone to do that. So first he's saying, this is what must happen to me. And now he's saying, this is what you must do if you want to follow me. So first he says, if anyone wants to be his disciple, my disciple, let him deny himself. This is a call to act in a wholly selfless way. One way to think about this word deny is to say no to oneself. It means we're, we're not in charge anymore. We're not on the throne. We're not calling the shots. We're not behind the steering wheel. We're saying no to ourselves. That's what it means to deny ourselves. Second, if anyone wants to be Jesus' disciple, let him take up his cross daily. And a cross was the Roman uh, method of executing people, criminals, especially people who rebelled against the empire of Rome. As a person walked to their death, they would take up their cross, they would hold the horizontal beam of the cross, and they'd walk up to the place where they're going to be executed with it. And clearly this isn't saying that one day we also have to be executed in this way by dying on a cross, because he says take up your cross daily, you can't be you know, executed by crucifixion every single day. But the cross symbolizes the world's rejection of Jesus. Jesus' crucifixion is a picture of the world saying no to Jesus as king. It shows the world's hatred of God's rule of saying, we don't want you to be in charge. And therefore, to take up our cross daily means we accept the world's rejection of our king and his kingdom. And it means we're also accepting the world's rejection and hatred of us for being part of that kingdom, for us saying yes to Jesus. When we say no to ourselves and yes to Jesus, that puts us, makes us outsiders in this world. It makes us people who are no longer part of the kingdom of this world. We're part of a different kingdom now. And kingdoms often war against each other. We've left the kingdom of this world for Jesus' kingdom. And we accept that the kingdom of this world will label us as rebels, quote, rebels against it. That's what the cross was, a, a way to execute rebels. And Rome and the religious leaders executed Jesus as someone, we don't, you're not going in line with what we're doing. And so we have to accept that the world will see us as rebels against the worldly kingdom. Third, if anyone wants to be Jesus' disciple, let him follow Jesus. This is a call to align our lives with his. We uh, say what he said. We do what he did. We believe what he does. We believe what he says. We align our life with Jesus. And so, you know, think about this for a marketing campaign. Hey guys! I'm, the, you know, I'm God's king, I'm going to die, and if you want to follow me, you have to die too. It's like a you know, suicide mission. Why would we ever do this? Why would we ever choose to live like this? Why would we choose to experience such difficulty to be outsiders in this world? Why would we give up control over our lives and willingly accept the hatred and rejection of others? Jesus gives the reason in verse 24. He says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Jesus says it is actually in our own best interest to do this. If we try to save our own lives by conforming to this world, then we will lose our life in the end. But he says, but whoever loses their life for my sake by denying themselves, taking up their cross daily, and following him will save it. If we insist on trying to play God with our lives, of being the ones who are in the driver's seat, then we will destroy our lives. And to ever think that we are saving our life is an illusion. It's temporary. It, it doesn't last. It's you know, like a flower that you cut and bring into your house and put in a vase. There's no way you can keep that flower alive. It doesn't matter how much miracle grow you put in it, or sugar, or whatever weird stuff that we're, people say to keep flowers alive, but that flower is going to die. It is temporarily seeming like it's alive. And it's been cut off from the source of life. And so losing your life is the only way to save it. You win in life by losing your life. You give it to Jesus. You, uh, give, uh, you let go in order to live. And then Jesus asked a question in verse 25. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? And it's a rhetorical question. Which, you know, rhetorical questions only work if the answer is obvious. So, if, you know, I asked a rhetorical question and somebody answered me. That would really, that kind of like kills what I was trying to do. But this is a rhetorical question that has an obvious answer. And the answer is nothing. It profits you nothing to gain the whole world and lose yourself. And the Greek, Greek word translated as life is also, can also be translated as Soul. And the question asks, what is worth more than your soul? And the answer is, nothing is worth more than your soul. Nothing is worth more than yourself. The answer is supposed to be obvious, but Jesus is asking this question because even though the answer is obvious, we are tempted to live in the opposite way. We're actually tempted to exchange ourselves for the things of this world. Jesus is basically saying, but just take a minute, do the math, just do the math here. Is what you're getting in exchange for losing yourself worth it? Do you think that what you're gaining is worth more than what you're losing? You're losing. And the problem is that we often live as if we make a profit from selling our souls for the things of this world. We live like that, we're profiting that. Like I'm just gonna sell myself to get the things that the world has to offer me. And we so we need to ask, what are the things of the world that we try to pay for with our souls? You know, imagine you have a wallet and it's what's in it isn't money, it's yourself. And I'm gonna okay. I'm gonna buy the things of this world. By you know, what am I paying for? What am I getting? What am I trying to buy with my soul? And just me. Just go back to the parable of the soils in chapter eight. One soil abandons Jesus for worldly possessions, the cares and riches and pleasures of life. Another soil abandons Jesus for worldly popularity. So worldly possessions, worldly popularity, popularity, worldly popularity is they. Fall away when others reject them or disapprove of them for following Jesus. And when following Jesus becomes costly, these two soils stop following. And Jesus is asking, is having the possessions of the world and the popularity from the world worth it? Is giving your life for that, giving your soul for that worth it? Do the math. You aren't coming out on top of this deal. You're losing more than you're gaining. You aren't profiting is what he's saying. But this is the temptation we too often fall into, that we give our life to get the world's possessions and the world's popularity. Why will we lose our life if we choose to align ourselves with the world instead of with Jesus? Verse 26 answers, Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. But I tell you, truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Jesus makes the stakes clear. Uh, As God's Messiah, as God's appointed um, ruler, um, Jesus is both Savior and Judge. And so in his first coming, he came to provide salvation. In his second coming, which is what this is talking about, when Jesus comes in glory and it will be very clear, oh, he is the king over the whole universe. When he comes again in glory, he is going to be coming as judge, not as savior. He's coming to savior as those who have trusted in him, but judge of those who have not. And one day, each and every one of us will stand before face to face with Jesus. And in that moment, he will either be our savior or he will be our judge. And if we are ashamed of Jesus, who he is, what he said, what he stands for, then Jesus will be ashamed of us. If we deny him instead of denying ourselves, then Jesus will deny us. If we refuse to acknowledge him as our king, the one we follow, and the one to whom we're loyal, then he won't acknowledge us as his followers. If we distance ourselves from Jesus, he will distance himself from us. If we align our lives with the world instead of Jesus, then we have chosen our faith, he's saying. And two weeks ago, Kitty pointed this out to me, um, Neutrogena and Avino did a recall on some of their sunscreens and it turned out that they had a, a chemical in some of their sunscreens called benzene and this chemical is a carcinogen and carcinogens cause cancer and so, let's think about this why do we wear sunscreen? It's to protect our skin from the sun so we don't get sunburned some of us wear it more than others such as me, I get a lot of sunburns uh, we prevent sunburn and why do we protect our skin from the sun it's so we don't get sunburn? so we don't get cancer but this sunscreen had a carcinogen in it that causes cancer. So in the very effort people buying this, who are unaware of it, were trying to protect themselves from getting cancer. They're actually putting something on themselves that gives them cancer. And so uh, it's the very action they're doing to save themselves from cancer is actually giving them cancer, possibly. Jesus says, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. We try to save our own lives through having the world's possessions, the world's popularity. What we think is saving us is actually killing us. The act of trying to protect ourselves and save our life is actually what is going to kill us in the end. What looks like life with the world is actually death. And what looks like death with Jesus is actually life. So we've asked this question a couple times in this series, or maybe once at least. What's your vision of good life? What are you pursuing? What do you give your time, energy, and resources to? What are you most concerned with? We need to ask ourselves Does the way I live show I'm dedicated to worldly possessions and popularity? Or does it show that I'm dedicated to Jesus above all else? Now, that's for people who have been following Jesus for 20 years or five years or they're about to follow Jesus right now. That's always our question Does my life show I'm dedicated to worldly possessions and popularity? Or does it show dedicated to Jesus above all else? Does your life show you're so dedicated to Jesus that you'll even lose possessions and popularity for him? And if we're unwilling to lose those things for Jesus, it means that we value worldly possessions and worldly popularity above him. And he says if we're doing that, we're destroying our, our life. In verses 18 through 27, we hear about Jesus' suffering and death verses we just covered. And then in verses 28-36, through 36, we hear about Jesus' glory. Both happen um, after or while Jesus is praying, showing us that these revelations of who Jesus is are given by God. While Jesus is up on this mountain with Peter, James, and John, they're all uh, kind of like, you know, their eyelids are heavy, they can barely stay awake, but suddenly they snap awake when they see Jesus' face has been changed, and his clothes are like this dazzling white. And there's two men, two prophets from the Old Testament, talking with him, Moses and Elijah. And as Moses and Elijah start to depart, um, Peter suggests, well, what, "Wait a second, you know, let's. What if we build a tent for each of you, and you guys can just hang out here?" And maybe he's thinking back to the Old Testament days when uh, Moses was going meet with Moses face to face, in the tent, the tabernacle. Um, Jesus, he just or Peter's so amazed and overwhelmed. He's, like, "I want to do something to memorialize this. Let's keep this thing going. This is exciting." And you I mean he can understand why he's so excited and kind of like, you know, freaking out because it's like he's read about Moses and Elijah all of his life and now all of a sudden they're standing there before him. And so perhaps he thinks, you know, if we can get other people to see this, you know, Moses and Elijah, here they are with Jesus, like that could get this Messiah movement really going. This would be pretty exciting. And it also seems like he kind of puts Moses and Elijah equal to Jesus. Oh, I'll build a tent for each of you. Either way, whatever Peter's thinking, this moment is very special to him. Even though in this moment he gets interrupted by God and says he doesn't know what he was saying, but if you look at Second Peter one sixteen through nineteen, he writes about this. Like we're not coming up with these weird, cleverly devised myths and stories. Like, look, I was there. I saw the majesty on the mountain. So you can look that up later. Second Peter one sixteen through nineteen. But as Peter's giving these suggestions, God interrupts him and doesn't let him finish and tells, showing him, Jesus is far greater than Moses or Elijah. A cloud descends, and a voice from the cloud says, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And then after that, all they saw was Jesus there. So we might ask, What is this whole event about? What are they doing here? Well, God's words from the cloud are actually quoting or alluding to three different passages, and they tell us that Jesus fulfills three different roles from the Old Testament. He says, This is my son. This tells us that Jesus... It's fulfilling the role of the promised king who would come in the family of David. God, in Psalm 2-7, calls um, the kings in the line of David, he says, they are my sons, because they're supposed to reflect what he's like through their reign and rule. He says, my chosen one. This tells us that Jesus fulfills the role of the servant. The book of Isaiah, look at Isaiah 42-1, and the servant suffers on behalf of his people, like we read. He says, listen to him. And this tells us that Jesus fulfills the role of a prophet like Moses. Moses wrote, God will raise up a prophet like me. Listen to him. Moses and Elijah, were told, are talking to Jesus about his departure or it's the word Exodus in Greek. There might even be a little note in your Bible that uh, goes to the bottom of the page that says Exodus. And that word should sound familiar to us. I'm sure it does. It has a double meaning. Because Jesus is going to depart when he's in Jerusalem, um, but Moses led the people in an exodus, a, a departure out of slavery in the land of Egypt. Their departure from it. And Jesus is going, it says, to accomplish an exodus in Jerusalem through his death. He's accomplishing an exodus for others through his exodus. He's going to help others depart from sin and Satan and death by his own death. His death will liberate people from their slavery. And the pop prophet said that God would send the Messiah to lead his people in a new exodus and Jesus fulfills that. In verse 27 Jesus said "You know, some of you won't die before you see the kingdom of God uh, come and this is a fulfillment of what he was talking about. Peter, James and John are allowed to see Jesus' glory as the chosen one to get a glimpse of Jesus' his past glory um, when, before everything was created and then of his future glory when he's going to come again and establish his kingdom in full. But Jesus, he puts all that glory aside, his past glory, and he comes as he's saying here to die a death, humble himself, becoming a servant, and die on a cross. So as we think about our lives, everyone has a choice to make about Jesus. We stand, if you whether you trust in Jesus twenty years ago or ten years ago, every day we stand at a crossroads. We can reject Jesus and stay as we are. Or we can go down a path of following Jesus. And to go down that path requires change. In order to come after him, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him as your king, your shepherd, and your example. You have to lose your life for his sake. And it may sound like a lot. Uh, that is a huge change. It's a big change from living for ourselves, doing what we want, and doing something else. I mean, uh, we've experienced either marriage changing. Oh, this kind of change. How I have to live now, I have another person I have to take into account. Or as parents, you we know, we experience that of like, oh, now it's totally different. I'm keeping this other human being alive, We're not just living for ourselves anymore. It's a lot of giving up and losing involved. But we will be compelled to go down this path because of what we gain. The cost of what we give is nothing compared to what we gain. In fact, holding onto the steering wheel of our life has gets us nowhere good, and it won't get us anywhere good. We need to come to the realization that the cost of staying as we are is greater than the cost of giving our life over to Jesus, getting off the throne, bowing before him as king to rule over our lives. And when it comes to Christian life, Jesus tells us, you can't just make little tweaks to your life. Like we can't just be like, okay Jesus, I'm just going to Take a little bit of what you say, and I'm just going to make some tweaks based on that. He's saying, you know, you need a complete overhaul of your life. You need to actually just deny yourself, say no to yourself, and take up your cross and start following me. You need someone else in charge. It's not about little tweaks. We need a major overhaul. And if you think about just other instances in life where we endure hard things uh, because of what we gain from it, we'll go through surgery, we'll go through rehab. We'll totally change our diets for health reasons. We'll, we'll move from one place to another, you know, uproot, uprooting our whole lives because we think that other place is going to be a better uh, situation for us. And why do we do these difficult, sometimes painful things? It's because the perceived gains outweigh the perceived losses. The cost of staying as we are is greater than the cost of change. And the pain of where we are is greater than the pain of change path is not easy. It involves denying ourselves. It involves taking up our cross. It involves aligning ourselves with Jesus. But we have to consider not just the difficulty of the path, but also its destination. Because Jesus is saying, he said the, the way to life is narrow and difficult, but the way to destruction is wide and easy. And so when we're looking at the path, it's not, oh, which is the more difficult one? It's where does this lead us? What destination does it take us towards? And losing our life for Jesus' sake is difficult, but the destination is life and glory. The path of saving our life on our own terms is easy, but the destination is death. It's important for us to remember that we aren't the first to walk this path. Jesus already walked this path um, before us. The path for a disciple of Jesus is the same path Jesus walked. Suffering, then glory. Death, and resurrection. We have to lose in order to gain. We have to lay down our lives in order to be raised to new life. We have to take up our cross before we receive of eternal life, and Jesus says we must lose our life for His sake. We need to give it to Him. And why would we give it to Him? You know, instead of keeping it for ourselves, like um, why should we trust Him with it? And we see in this passage, He says, "I'm going to suffer, be rejected, and die." And why is He doing that? I like the words that the Apostle, the Apostle Paul says. He says Jesus loved us gave himself up for us. We're, we're not surrendering to someone who's power-hungry. Oh, you know, I just want, you know, like a pyramid scheme or something. And Jesus is at the top. I just want more people under me. And so I have more control or, you know, more power. But this is someone who laid down his life for us. And if we ask, well, who do we want, who do we most want to be in control of our lives? Well, we would say it's the person who's most loving. The person who's most trustworthy to be in control of our lives It's the person who has our best interests at heart. It's the person who wants what's best for us and will do anything in order to give us what's best for us. And if we think about it, we actually aren't the best person to be in control of our lives because we rarely do what is best for us. If we really do have our best interests in mind, then when we surrender to Jesus, we often think that uh, we know what's best, but we prove over and over again that we actually don't know what's best for us. And Jesus has already proved his commitment to our well-being, and to our wholeness, to our health, to our happiness by dying for us in our place. He's already demonstrated his commitment to us and shown, I'm willing to go this far to do what's best for you. He was the first to deny himself and take up his cross. He was the first to carry the beam of his own cross to his death. Because he did so, we can... Now be saved by him. We can enter his kingdom. We can become members of God's family. And Jesus isn't taking us anywhere that he hasn't already gone. Jesus paid the price for all the times that we're going to fail at this. And if we could do this perfectly, he wouldn't have had to go to the cross. It could have just been a message from heaven. Guess what you need to do in order to be saved? Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. Oh, okay. There's stuff we have to do. But Jesus went to the cross because we're going to fail at this. And in fact, Peter actually denies Jesus. The exact same word is used when Peter denies Jesus three times. And yet, Jesus forgives Peter and becomes a leader in the church. Suffering, rejection, and challenges in our life may lead us to believe, I feel like I'm just doing something wrong here. Like, God, if if I was really following you, if you love me, if you care, if I was doing this thing right... I want not have this suffering. I want not have rejection. I want not have challenges and hardship. But Jesus' crucifixion also might lead one to conclude this guy was forsaken by God. He was a fraud. He was a failure. Look, he died. didn't accomplish anything he said he would do. But God clearly says in this passage, He is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Jesus' suffering doesn't mean he isn't God's son. Jesus' rejection by others doesn't mean he's chosen. he isn't chosen by God. And Jesus' death doesn't mean he was wrong and we shouldn't listen to him. In fact, it's actually how the Messiah fulfills his purpose. The cross is ordained as a necessity in the redemptive plan of God. The suffering of the Messiah is not incompatible with the glory of the Messiah. And it's how Jesus is going to lead his people. It's how God's reign and rule comes to earth. And so, for ourselves, we too can know that when What we're doing is bringing suffering or hardship or difficulty in your life. Or saying like, man, I'm just having to give up so much. So many worldly possessions and so many worldly comforts and so many worldly popularity. It just feels like I'm not doing something right here. If I was really following God, if I had enough faith, everything would be going well for me. But we too can know that when what we're doing feels like we're dying to ourselves, that we're walking with Jesus and that God loves us, that he's chosen us, that we're listening to him. Pap is suffering, then glory; death, then resurrection; cross, then crown. As we deny ourselves, take up our cross. That's how God's reign and rule touches down in our lives. It's a famous quote by a man named Jim Elliot, and you probably have heard it before. Um, but the Huarani people uh, in Ecuador were people that Jim Elliot and other other t- uh, missionaries on his team went to go and reach with the gospel. And they, the day that him and three others planned to visit the Khourani, um tribe, uh, they were met by ten of their men, uh, who ended up killing all four of those missionaries: um, Jim Elliot plus three others. On January eighth, nineteen fifty-six, Jim Elliot died. And his journal entry about five years earlier express the truth that we see in this passage. He said this, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And we all live with the same perspective and devotion to Jesus, believing that what Jesus says here is true. What We are losing, we cannot keep. What we're gaining, we cannot lose. Let's pray. God, we see that Jesus has done everything he's asking us to do because we're going to fail at doing it. Lord, would you let us believe these words that the things we're losing here really are temporary and they don't help us. But what we're gaining is life, uh, eternal life and um, having Jesus as the one who affirms us and knows our, us by name and who loves us and when we die we'll say, that's, that's one of mine. Lord, would you let us live with the, that reality each and every day? So, his name we pray. Amen.